and they care about you. So they care about who they let teach God's word to you. This isn't just I'm in town. These are men who are careful. Last year, Keith listened to sermons of mine before he allowed me to speak. He didn't go off of, I've heard of this guy. He said, I want to hear him teach. And I'm grateful for that. You have men that are guardians of God's word. And so it is a privilege to be able to speak this morning. As a fellow pastor, this is a holy moment. You just don't let anyone teach. And so I'm grateful for your pastoral team for allowing me to do that. All right, we're going to go from Matthew 12 this morning. So if you have a Bible, please open it. I, I don't know what I was thinking. I packed my, uh, my lollipop gill Bible this morning. <laughs> I don't know what I was thinking. This is not the Bible I preach from. I mean, I have good eyes, but this is, this is so. As I'm reading this morning, if you see me looking down, it might be a work of the Spirit, or it might be that I just have like the smallest Bible in the world. And some of the biggest hands and my thumb can cover a whole chapter. So I have to, if I put my hand like this, I can't even read God's Word. It's, it's amazing. Now, let me ask this. This is the question I want to ask. I don't know what the culture is like down here. How many of you, how many of you have ever seen or grew up watching the, the, the kung fu action theater? Where you would watch these kung fu fights. It was a really horrible overdub. And you'd watch these guys fight. How many just by a show of hands have seen that? Okay, for those of you that haven't church discipline, we'll be talking about that today. It is, it is almost sinful to not have seen the Kung Fu action theater. It is, look, this is what happens. It's the same scene every time. There's someone's walking through a rice field. And, and they're, they're, they're picking rice. And then all of a sudden, someone shows up. And then they just begin to talk, and the interpretation is so terrible, but it's so funny because it's all action. So the guy will look up, and he'll be like this. <laughs> so, King Kwa. <laughs> I hear your kung fu. It's pretty good. <laughs> and then the other guy will respond, and he'll talk for five minutes with his mouth, but say three words. And he'll go like this. <laughs> <laughs> Let's fight. <laughs> and they jump into the air, right? They jump into the air. <laughs> and they land. Look at each other. <laughs> jump again. <laughs> All these are in the air, like five minutes in the air, right? <laughs> then they land. <laughs> Pretty good. <laughs> I mean, it, it's, it's amazing. And then, 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 when the old dude with the white hair comes in, woo -hoo, woo, this dude comes in, arms behind his back, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm, with a hat on, covering his face. Mm -hmm, mm, he says one word. Mm -hmm, <laughs> die. <laughs> It is amazing. If you watch these movies, you, if you haven't seen this movie, I guarantee you'll rent one now. 
It is amazing. It's amazing. The interpretation is horrible. It's terrible. But it's okay because the action is good. In a kung fu movie, bad interpretation is hilarious. In Scripture, bad interpretation is eternally dangerous. In a movie, it's laughable. In Scripture, it's dangerous. In the Scriptures, we see a lot of bad interpretation, a lot of it, especially in the Gospels. And it's a big deal. Here's why. If your interpretation of the Scripture is bad, then your application of the Scripture may be bad as well. There is an indescribable connection between what you interpret and what you apply. So if you apply Scripture badly, you can probably trace it to you are interpreting Scripture badly. And we see this a lot in the Gospels. As a matter of fact, Jesus' primary clash with the Pharisees and the Sadducees is due to the fact of bad interpretation. And today, we will see one such example. And this is what I'm going to try to prove today. If, you, if you're taking notes, here's just the point I'm trying to prove today. Here's the point. Jesus is the primary interpreter of Scripture because he's the primary object of Scripture. He's the primary interpreter because he's the primary object. In other words, Jesus knows what the Scripture means because it's about him. He knows how to interpret it, and he knows how to apply it. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to read 14 verses in Matthew 12. We'll pray, and we'll try to see, hopefully, this reality that Jesus is the primary interpreter because he's the primary object. Be reading from the ESV Bible, beginning at verse 1 in chapter 12, and I quote, At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. 
He went on from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So they might accuse him. He said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and it was restored healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I thank you again for the privilege to be among people that I love in a church that I think about even while I'm at my own church. I thank you, Lord, for the privilege and the opportunity to speak this morning. But I also know because this is your word, this is not just an opportunity, but a responsibility. I have a responsibility given to me by the pastors of this church to speak your word in due season. So I pray, Lord, for your help, for the relational dynamic is here. There is mutual love here. But this is something different. This is about you and about your word. And I pray, Lord, that you would help me to speak this morning. I also pray that you would open the hearts of those who are listening for, if you do not, then my words would sound no different than Charlie Brown's school teacher. And I pray that you would help me teach because I never do it without being taught. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, four ways we're going to look at this, all right? We're going to look at this four ways. The four ways we're going to look at Matthew 12, here are the four. The first, we're going to see bad interpretation. Bad interpretation is the first. The second is right interpretation. The third is right application. And then lastly, we'll look at our interpretation. So we've got bad interpretation, right interpretation, right application, and our interpretation. Uh, let's start with bad interpretation, verses 1 and 2. Now we see here at the top of this verse the reality of how bad interpretation of Scripture leads to bad application of Scripture. So here Jesus, he's walking with his disciples in the grain fields, and the Pharisees, it does, it's not clear on if they're following Jesus, have been following Jesus, but what is clear is that they're present and they watch his disciples pick the heads of the grain, and they have a problem with that. They have a problem, and they address him directly. And they say to him, in verse 2, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath. Now, here's the problem. Here's the problem. Deuteronomy 23, 25 says this. 
If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. Here's the problem. The Pharisees' interpretation is bad because God's word in the law of Moses makes provision for you to take some of the grain, but not the whole thing. Don't put the sickle to it. Don't cut it and take it, but you may take some of your neighbor's grain. So there's no harm here. But the issue for the Pharisees was that they did this on the Sabbath. They did this on the Sabbath. The Pharisees respond to what they see Jesus doing with their interpretation of Exodus 20, 8 through 11. They have an interpretation of the fourth commandment, and this is what they're responding to. It says unlawful. When you see the word unlawful, it just means sinful. It says you're Your disciples are doing what's sinful on the Sabbath. This is their interpretation of the fourth commandment. Let's look really quickly at the fourth commandment, Exodus 20, 8 through 11. You don't have to turn there. I think it'll be behind me on the screen. The technology is amazing today. You can stay right where you are and follow this. This is Exodus 20, 8 through 11, the fourth commandment, and I quote, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who was within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven, made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. Now, many of us are familiar with this commandment to keep the Sabbath. Even if you're not a believer here this morning, you are at least vaguely familiar with the Ten Commandments. You may not know all of them in order, but you know to some degree the Ten Commandments, for they actually govern a lot of Western civilization, how we interact with one another. But the Pharisees' interpretation of this commandment is inaccurate. Now, I don't have time to get into all the pharisaical hermeneutics, but I will say this. What they did was they created 39 prohibitions called the Mishnah. And in these prohibitions, they took 39 things that this passage is saying are prohibited to do on the Sabbath. They added 39 rules. And apparently, Jesus and his disciples are breaking one of them. But plucking heads of grain is not forbidden. This is bad interpretation, and it leads to bad application. So they are indignant. They are angry, and they approach Jesus. Now, Jesus seeks to correct their error by giving right interpretation. So here's our second point, right interpretation. Jesus begins reinterpreting the Scripture first. This is what he's going to do. He's going to do three things. Here's what Jesus is going to do. He's going to, one, 
give right interpretation. He's going to reinterpret what is sinful. So he's going to reinterpret what is unlawful. Then he's going to reinterpret what is unlawful on the Sabbath. And then he's going to reinterpret who God is in relation to the Sabbath. So he goes at three different levels to help them see that you got bad interpretation of the word of God. So he begins in verse 3. He appeals first to the greatest king up to the point of his birth. He appeals to David, whom was the revered king of Israel, whom even though he did commit sin, people saw no sin. David was the man to the Israelites. And so Jesus goes back some thousand years and appeals to a situation to reinterpret for the Pharisees what exactly is unlawful. So he does this. He says this. Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? Verse 4, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of presence, which was not lawful for him to eat for those who were with him, but only for the priests. This is what he's talking about. He takes them back to 1 Samuel 21, verses 1 through 6. Now, here's what happened in 1 Samuel 20. David and Jonathan were friends. Jonathan was, the, was Saul, who was the current king of Israel's son. So David and Jonathan, they were homeboys. They was good people. And Jonathan was aware that his dad, Saul, did not like David. And David was aware of it too. So they made this agreement, said, look, there's a new moon festival and David's supposed to be at the table eating with Saul and his men. David said, look, I'm going to tell your dad that I want to go visit my brother, be with my people for that celebration. Now, if he gets angry, then we know he wants to kill me. If he doesn't get angry, then we know I'm safe. So Jonathan agrees. They go to the dinner. Saul finds out David's not coming, and he's furious. So Saul goes out with a little boy, and he shoots an arrow. And they had a phrase. If he says a particular phrase, tells the boy to get the arrow a certain kind of way, David knew, you got to go. You got to go. Saul, my dad wants to kill you. So that's what happened. They come up. They greet each other, saddened. And David flees to an area, a town called Nob, where the tabernacle was. And he walks in to the tabernacle, and he bumps into the priest, Ahimelech, and David lies to Ahimelech, says that he's on a mission from King Saul traveling, and he was hungry. The problem was the only thing that was in the temple was the bread of presence. And that tabernacle, the bread of presence, was set aside for the priests. There were 12 loaves of bread, each resembling the 12 tribes of Israel, and they were there just as an offering to the Lord. Only priests were allowed to eat that bread. But Ahimelech, he gives bread to David. And David and his men eat the bread. Here's what Jesus is saying. Pharisees, according to your interpretation of the law, what David did was sinful. Because he wasn't a priest. He wasn't even a Levite. What he did was sinful according to your interpretation of the law. However, nowhere 
in any Jewish rabbinic literature is this act by David condemned as sinful. Not once. So Jesus is saying to to them this, listen, your interpretation is wrong. What is unlawful, you're wrong at what is even sinful. Because according to you, what David did was sinful, but God does not hold David responsible for being hungry and eating bread. So he's correcting their interpretation because it's leading to bad application. Now, that wasn't on the Sabbath. So be one thing to say, okay, well, fine, we got that part wrong. But still, this is the Sabbath we're talking about. He didn't do that on the Sabbath. That wasn't a Sabbath day that David did that on, so we can agree with that. Okay, fine. You got us there. Touche. So here's what Jesus does. He moves from what is sinful to now, well, let's deal with your accusation. Let's deal with what is sinful on the Sabbath then. And he says this in verse 5. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? It's a pretty big statement. Here's what he's saying. Okay, the Sabbath, priests, he's saying they profane the Sabbath, right? Profane, profane just means it's, it's actions that are devoted to that which is unbiblical, actions that are more secular than they are religious. He's using terminology to stir them up because they wouldn't say that the priests are profaning the temple, but he's challenging them. And here's what he's getting at. He's getting at the responsibility of the priests every Sabbath, which was a Saturday. Friday evening to Saturday evening was the Sabbath in this day in Scripture, and it still is to people who are in Judaism. This is what he's getting at. Offerings in the temple on the Sabbath day were doubled, okay? They were doubled. Numbers 28, 9, and 10 says you offer two lambs and two more ephahs of flour to make a grain offering. So what Jesus is saying is, look, the priests have to work harder on the Sabbath than the rest of the week. Their work is doubled. They have to separate all of the offering. They have to clean all of that up. They have to count all the alms and all the money that comes in twice as much as they do Monday through Thursday. And according to your interpretation of the law, Pharisees, the priests are sinning. They're profaning the temple. Technically, they're breaking Sabbath rules every Sabbath. And he's saying, God does not count them as being sinning on the Sabbath because of the work that they're doing. You do, not God. From God's perspective, The temple worship of God took precedence over regulations about the Sabbath. See, the Pharisees' interpretation of the law is so bad 
but it leads to such misapplication that Jesus has to reinterpret everything for them. And by doing so, it should reinterpret their actions. Once your interpretation is accurate of God's word, it should lead to an accurate application. Their actions should be different. But it wasn't enough. Jesus reinterprets what it was sinful. Then he interprets what's sinful on the Sabbath. And he's saying to the Pharisees, you're wrong. God does not count what you count as sinful sinful. But he doesn't stop there. He reinterprets one more thing, and it's the most important thing. Look at verse 6. It says, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Jesus is about to reinterpret for the Pharisees, what God is like, especially in relation to the Sabbath. So he makes this statement. It seems like a passing comment. Something greater than the temple is here. But the Pharisees, that would go over their head. They wouldn't understand what he meant initially. But this is significant because if something greater than the temple is here, then whatever regulations are put in place to honor the temple are secondary to that which is greater than the temple. And it's right here where Jesus begins to correct their view of what God is like. They won't appreciate what he's about to say, because he is referring to himself as greater than the temple. But he does so because of this. The Pharisees, you look at Matthew 23, Jesus addresses the people, and he said, the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. And he says, observe what they say, but not what they do. See, here's the connection, and here's why this is important. If you, what you read in your Bibles, what you interpret scriptures to say, right, will affect what you do, right? We all would agree with that. It's application. What scripture means, I apply. But here's the catch. Both of those together shape what you think God is like. What you read and what you apply will inform your mind of the kind of God that you serve. So if you're interpreting Scripture wrongly and applying it wrongly, then your view of God is going to be wrong. And this is important because these men were teaching how to live. What does it say? how you should live, and that shapes what people thought God was like. Now, here's how that works for us. Let's look at the logic here so you know that I'm not just making this up and trying to be clever because I rap and stuff like that. (laughs) If you only read commands or focus on specific sin issues 
or if all you're reading and memorization is on growth, areas of sin where you need to grow in, then you will, by default, think that that's what God is like and that is all God cares about. If your diet of reading the Bible is all commands and imperatives, if all you read are commands, then it's no wonder that you are commanding. What you read is what you will think God is like. If you struggle with self-righteousness this morning, which to some degree all of us do, if you struggle with that, examine your reading. If you struggle with legalism, which is trying to earn your right standing before God, examine your reading habits. What are you reading? Because how you read your Bible will tell you what kind of God you think you serve. It's just the way it works. This is God's word. So how we interpret it will define how we apply it. And those two connected will show us what we think God is like. And self-righteous people think God is self-righteous. You struggle with sin and you're always worried about if God loves you. You need to stop reading commands and start reading promises. Because it will affect you. See, we often deal with the heart issue. We deal with the heart. It's a big deal. You deal with the heart. If there's an area of sin or a pattern of sin, we deal with the heart. You know what I've begun to do? I'm, I'm trying to deal with the mind. Because sometimes it's not arrogance. It's ignorance. The problems that we face are not always arrogance. It's not always our heart. We're devoted to sinning against the Lord in our hearts. A lot of it is just we're ignorant to what the Bible means. We're ignorant to the context. This is why it's important to read your Bible and trust the men that you have appointed leaders in this church who teach your Bibles. Because they care about what it says. Because we know that in a similar way, we sit in Moses' seat. Trust the men who lead you, but read your Bibles. And not just the portions that you can apply, but read the stuff that has nothing to do with you. Because it's about God, not about how we live. How one interprets the meaning of the text will determine how one thinks of God. So Jesus is about to make a powerful statement in verses 7 and 8, and he's going to show the Pharisees what God is really like. Let's look at 7 and 8. So he tells them in 6, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. They wouldn't understand that. So he moves to verse 7 and he says, if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He's reinterpreting the most important thing for the Pharisees and for us, whether you're Christian or not. 
He's reinterpreting what God is like. Now, here's what makes verses 7 and 8 unique. The Pharisees, think about this for a minute. The Pharisees do not think they're acting unlike God. See, we look at them and we can be self-righteous even towards them, right? You idiot. You know, we can think like that. Maybe it's just me, but I can think like that. But the Pharisees actually think they're pleasing God. They think that God is like them. They think that God is pleased with the 39 rules of the, of the Sabbath that they've created. They think that God is pleased that they do not allow people in the temple. They think that God is pleased that they separate themselves from other people in the church who are sinners. They think God is like them. They do not, they're not clear. They're not aware that God isn't like them. They think God isn't like Jesus. So from their perspective... They fundamentally believe that God is like them and is pleased with them. So Jesus appeals to the word of God and he does this. He cites Hosea 6.6. Did I do something wrong? Good. Heard a dip in my voice and I thought I ain't do that. Jesus cites Hosea 6, 6 in verse 7, using the phrase, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. See, these subtle scriptural references are blaring realities for them. See, they know their Bibles better than we do. Whenever you're reading your Bible and you see a quotation or you see like a little tiny superscripted letter, or whatever, go look and see where that is, especially when Jesus talks. See, Jesus wasn't making a lot of this stuff up. He wasn't freestyling commands and stuff. This is what Jesus is doing. Jesus is interpreting the Bible almost every time he spoke. You find those little verses in your Bible and go connect that and see what he's referencing. He's reinterpreting the scripture almost every time he spoke. And so he cites Hosea 6.6 knowing that they would understand this. And here's what he's saying to the Pharisees. Do you think God is like you? You think God is like you. You think God cares more about observing uh, 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 the Sabbath and the ritual laws than he does about having mercy? Do you honestly think, Pharisees, that God is legalistic like you? That he cares more about people starving on the Sabbath than he does about showing mercy to them. You think he cares more about your sacrifice than he does about your showing mercy? He's saying, God, it's not like you. He's not like you. He desires mercy, not sacrifice. God desires that men who are hungry and starving, they eat. God doesn't condemn the guiltless. The application of God is to show mercy, even in the law. Okay, there's a lot of arguments about the law 
And is it, was it legalistic and all these rules and the Ten Commandments and the moral law and the civil law and the ceremonial law and the, all, these, all this law in the Old Testament? And was it, could you actually earn your salvation? And was it possible? And was God re- basically making people legalistic by giving them all these laws? But people totally forget that in Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement, God made provision for the sins of all of Israel to be forgiven simply by laying hands on a goat and sending that goat off. All the sins that those people did were transferred to a goat once a year until Jesus came. That's mercy. Because what you did is way worse than laying hands on a goat. In Genesis, Adam and Eve sin against the Lord, and what does he do? They bite the fruit, they independently make clothes for themselves, they hear the voice of the Lord walking in the garden, and what do they do? They hide, and what does God do? He shows mercy. Did God destroy them? No, he did judge them. There were consequences for their actions. But in Genesis 3.21... God makes clothes for them. God took the clothes that they made that they weren't supposed to make and says, let me make better ones. He's always been a merciful God. And he's telling the Pharisees, God is not like you. This is a merciful God. He's not legalistic. So if you're here this morning... Wherever you fall on the spectrum, if you struggle with legalism, which is just trying to earn your righteousness before God, here's what I would say. And this is difficult, so I don't say this in any way to be self-righteous, but to just be, you're misinterpreting your Bible. That's bad interpretation, and it's leading to bad application. Yes, examine your heart, but examine your thoughts as well. How are you thinking about God's word? Stop reading commands and start reading promises. Read parts of the Bible that you cannot apply. Because it's about God and his work in the world, not about us and what we're supposed to do. There's a difference between ignorance and arrogance. Discern which one it is for you. What you think is a hard issue just may be you got bad interpretation of God's word and you need someone who knows God's word better than you to help you. No shame in that. All of us who stand here have the same problem. Trying our best to interpret God's word. So what Jesus says to the Pharisees is for our benefit this morning. God is not like you. He desires mercy, not sacrifice. Church, God is not like you. He desires mercy, not self-righteousness. He desires gentleness, not harsh correction of sin.
He's not like us. Jesus, in verse 8, ends this section by describing himself as Lord of the Sabbath. He says, he's Lord of the Sabbath, meaning, this is what he's saying. In the context of this message about being the primary interpreter versus the primary object, here's what Jesus is saying. God is not bound by the interpretation and application of the law as seen by the Pharisees. God is not bound to apply the law based upon the Pharisees' interpretation. Since he's Lord of the Sabbath, he's above the Sabbath, he's, he's not constrained to apply the Sabbath because he is the Sabbath. He's not restricted to the Pharisees' 39 rules about what not to do. He's not restricted to apply their Sabbath law because he is the Sabbath. So he alone knows what the Sabbath means and how it should be applied. This is all right interpretation. So he interprets rightly, reinterprets, their view of what is sinful. He reinterprets what is sinful on the Sabbath. Then he reinterprets who God is, and especially in relation to the Sabbath. God is merciful. This is why, can you see now why Jesus was angry with the Pharisees? They taught the people wrongly. They created a culture that was so wrong in their interpretation and application of the law that no one even recognized Jesus when he came. Even as he did all these miracles, no one recognized him. Only three people in Scripture recognized him, and that was at the, and when he was a baby. Remember, Joel held him and said, oh, Lord. The day has come, now I can die. And Luke, the prophetess Anna, she held him as a baby as they brought him to the temple. Those were the only ones. And the, oh, the last person who knew that he was the Messiah was John the Baptist. All the miracles he did, they didn't recognize that this was the Messiah. The Pharisees had taught so wrongly that they couldn't even see that the Messiah was here. So Jesus, in most of his communication, is reinterpreting for people what God is like and pointing them to the fact that he's like me, himself, so that people would believe in him. Bad interpretation will make you miss what God is doing in your life and in the life of your church. Bad interpretation of evangelism will lead you to be discouraged if many of those people don't come from Alpha to Sunday. If you think, oh man, look in Acts, God had 3,000 people he added that day. We need to think like that and have confidence that God can add. It's bad interpretation. That'll make you miss the three people that got saved that are now in your church. 
that'll make you miss the fact that Jeff is in the hood. <laughs> As a matter of fact, Jeff is only safe because he has a bald head and a black truck. <laughs> they think Jeff is police when he rides through. Jeff is saying, first year I rode with him, I said, oh, Jeff, you all right. We can go to any neighborhood you want because as soon as you come, people are going to start walking away. <laughs> he's in the trenches, and he's got a couple guys coming. That interpretation of evangelism will make you miss the beauty of what God is doing. Bad interpretation of the doctrine of perseverance will make you miss what God is doing in your life as it relates to sanctification. You got a couple of issues, a couple of habits that you just can't break. You've been at this for years. You've been trying. You're ready to give up. You read these passages. You memorize these scriptures and you struggle and you get tempted at God, angry at God because your interpretation is this all that God cares about. God could take every sin struggle that we have away like that. You know what God's after? He's after people who are willing to persevere in the midst of their struggles. He's not after people who say, how can I not feel depressed? God is after people who say, how can I glorify God as a depressed person? God may let some thorns in the flesh exist. so that we can boast in our weaknesses and we fight. So habits that you got, they may not go away as quickly as you want because God wants people who persevere in trusting him. It's reinterpreting his word for us. We get to right application, Jesus, after reinterpreting, he gives right interpretation, he moves to right application. He's using scripture to interpret his words, and now he moves to application. So here's the interpretation. God is not like you. It's not sinful to pluck grain on the Sabbath. And that God is above the Sabbath, not constrained to the laws of your interpretation to keep the Sabbath. God's not like you. So what's the application then? What's the application? There's your interpretation. Good. Okay. What's the application then? What does it look like? 9 through 14. Show us the application. We'll read 9 through 13. He went on from there. So this is still the Sabbath. It's the same day. He went on from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? He said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored healthy like the other. See, Jesus doesn't just interpret his right interpretation leads to right application. So what he does is he challenges the Pharisees again. He goes into the synagogue. and that, Now remember, they're still believing they have the right interpretation of the law, right? Because it says they asked him the question so that they might accuse him. 
So they're not convinced with his story about David or his story about the priest. They're not convinced by his examples. They disagree with his interpretation, and they think it's still unlawful to do work on the Sabbath, even heal, even heal. So Jesus not only corrects their bad interpretation, but he corrects their bad application by using an example that is typical on the Sabbath. He exposes their bad exegesis by appealing to a situation that is normal. Sheep, they're just dumb. And sheep, if they're, you know, sheep, they're walking and they, and they just fall into a ditch. And it's Sabbath. And the sheep is, and it's like you have a choice. Do you leave the sheep there because it's the Sabbath? Or do you get it out? No, sheep, them, them, them things is big. Sheep, we're not talking about lambs. You just said sheep. In the Greek, it meant sheep, the big ones that they shave and use for coats. These sheep are big. You need a couple of homeboys to come. Hey, man, help me move the sheep, man. It fell in the dish. You need a couple folks to come help you lift that thing out. That thing is in a ditch. You need, you need help. And Jesus is saying, look, he's basically saying, you do that. If your sheep falls into a ditch, you would get it out. You don't consider that work. You're showing mercy to the sheep. You're not going to leave it there. Oh, man, dag, it's... You got to wait 18 more hours, man. I can't. <laughs> I mean, who's going to do that? Nah, look, uh, hold on. Pop, pop. Hold on. We'll be there in about 20 hours. You keep checking in. Uh, eight more hours to go, man, and we'll get you out. It's like... Jesus is saying, that's absurd. You don't even do that with an animal yet. You think God is so concerned with sacrifice and rituals on the Sabbath that he wouldn't want to heal a man's hand? So God is so pleased with you for taking your sheep out, but he's disappointed in you because you would heal a man on the Sabbath? It doesn't make sense doesn't make sense. So Jesus has right application. He applies God's word rightly by saying to the man, lift up your hand. And he does, and it's restored. And here's what Jesus is really getting at. He's telling the Pharisees that, look, your problem is not what you think is sinful on the Sabbath. Jesus is saying your problem is actually the way you interpret the Sabbath. You got bigger issues than just what's lawful on the Sabbath. Jesus is saying by doing this, it's your whole understanding of the purpose of the Sabbath law is wrong. So the question is, what did the Pharisees get wrong about the fourth commandment? Let's look at it again, Exodus 20, 8 through 10. Let me give you a quick background on what the Sabbath was. The context of the Sabbath is about rest. Rest is a major theme in Scripture. It's a major theme. 
God was taking Israel from Egypt to the land of Canaan to rest. It was rest. It was about rest. The book of Hebrews, a major theme in the book of Hebrews is about rest, entering into God's rest. The Sabbath was about imitating God who rested on the seventh day. So whenever they thought of the word Sabbath, rest was the equivalent. It was synonymous to them. The nation should be resting on the Sabbath. But here's the problem. The Pharisees interpreted Sabbath to mean the absence of all activity. It's a very American interpretation, especially if you're a teenager. The rest that they interpreted was the absence of all activity. And this was a bad interpretation. It appears that the kind of labor that God had in mind on the Sabbath was different. Let's look closely at verse 9. And I'm going to join you by turning around. Verse, verse 9 isn't there, so I'm going to turn back around and look at... It's like that sometimes, you know. Here's verse 9. It says, Six days you shall labor and do all your work. The key phrase is your work. Then in verse 10, God gives different categories of work. So he gives a category of people that should not work or do specific kinds of work. So he says your male servants, your female servants, your sons, your daughters, and all livestock, they all do a particular kind of work. It's a work that earns wages. It's a work that provides. Any labor that constitutes making a living, provision, is what is in view here. The Sabbath is the one day that they were to rest from work so that they could, in an undistracted way, focus on the work that God has done. When God rested in Genesis 2, 1 and 2, he rested after seeing all that he had done was good. The Sabbath was set up by God for Israel to have a day to reflect on the good that God has done. See, in all the hustle and bustle of life, even though they had a different culture, they could get caught up in all that was happening, just like we could today. You could forget to pray. They didn't forgot to meditate on God's word. They forgot they, had, they were busy. They had to get up and, and go plow and, and go walk and do what, all the work that they were doing. It's just you got to pay. You got to move. You got to work. And you can be just as distracted as we are today. So God said, take a day imitating me and focus on all the good that I have done. This was a day to allow Israel to set aside a day of dependence and remembrance on God. But the Pharisees interpreted labor to mean all activity. Yet nowhere in Scripture do you see God as being inactive. Rest from God's perspective is not the absence of activity. I mean, if God literally rested on the seventh, every Sabbath day, everybody would die. <laughs> I mean, think about it. God would create and kill every week. It doesn't make sense. 
So the, God didn't rest from all activity. He rests from creating life. He rested from work that he did that was good. And he said, that's where you rest from, not all inactivity. In Paul's letters, Paul rebukes people who are idle, right? Being idle is being inactive. Paul said in, in multiple letters, look, I work with my own hands. Paul didn't have to work technically, but he chose to work so that there was no question about his authority as an apostle and no hindrance to the gospel going forward. There's never been a category of inactivity. That's not what God meant in the fourth commandment. It was never supposed to be the absence of a labor of love. See, the work that God is talking about resting from is not the work of loving your neighbor, loving your brother, of being merciful, being gentle, being a servant. What Jesus is talking about is not the absence of activity. The work that you rest from is work that provides and earns provision that distracts from the labor of love that you're supposed to have for one another. The labor that never rests is the one that shows mercy and does good. This is what Jesus is talking about. The Pharisees have so misinterpreted the fourth commandment that they totally think that even the absence of showing love to one another pleases God. And Jesus is saying, no, it does not. Rest is supposed to be the pursuit of doing what is good to do in Christ. Here's the proof. Here's proof. Look at Matthew 11. Last three passages, last three verses before our passage, beginning in verse 28. Now look, remember this context. This is the context of, this is sometimes the gospel stories, they, they have these breaks in between and stuff, but those weren't necessarily in the original context. These were added so that people could understand divisions. But look at the context of what Jesus is saying before we get to him interpreting the Sabbath. Beginning at verse 28, listen to what he says. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And in verse 30, Jesus says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Do you think Jesus is talking about inactivity when he says, come to me and you will find rest? I don't think so. Jesus is saying rest is imitation of him. Look how he's defining rest. He says, take my yoke. Take my yoke upon you. You'll find rest in my yoke. The resting in his yoke is the yoke of grace. It's grace. It's the yoke of being forgiven when you fail. It's the yoke of being a son and daughter of God. 
It's the grace of experiencing God's favor. It's the yoke of receiving God's spirit. It's the yoke of God's spirit giving you the desire and the ability to obey him. It's a yoke of grace versus the yoke of the law, which was trying to keep every commandment ever written and constantly feeling condemned and guilty or being self-righteous because you think it's actually possible to do so. Jesus is saying the rest is an imitation of me. And what he does is he cites, this is one of those, look at your little superscription letter in your Bible. He cites Jeremiah 6.16 that says, Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for ancient paths. Where is the good way? And walk in it and find rest in your souls. Where's the good way? Walk in it and find rest in your souls. The rest is walking on the paths that are good ways. It is there that we find rest for our souls, not the absence of activity. It's imitating Jesus and knowing that, hey, when I fail, God forgives me. And you keep moving. You're not kicking yourself. You're not seeing God as a judge. You're seeing God as a father. The Sabbath is not about having a day of bed rest. It's resting in the good of what Jesus did. This is why we're not Seventh-day Adventists. Because we're not called to rest on a day anymore. We're called to rest in a person. We're called to rest in Jesus, not on a day. The Pharisees got this wrong, and they messed up a lot of people. But Jesus is interpreting it rightly. He is able to interpret the word rightly because he is the object of the word. It's about him. And his application of his word is always right. Lastly, look at verse 14. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Church, here's why I think there's something in this for us. I think sometimes, I know I can be this way, and I'm going to assume with this many people here, you may feel the same. I think that we can be like the Pharisees in the way Jesus applies Scripture in our lives. See, Jesus primary, primarily interpreted the law for the Pharisees, but for us, he primarily interprets his promises. We relate to God through promises, not through law. See, his actions demonstrated the proper application of his interpretation of the law, and that angered the Pharisees. They didn't like what he was doing because they saw it as a misrepresentation of what God should do. And in similar fashion, Jesus still interprets Scripture in our lives today, but he does it through a variety of means, the church, the Holy Spirit, but one of the primary ways that God interprets he, his application in our lives is through our circumstances. See, like the Pharisees, we too can misinterpret a scripture and therefore act or better expect God to act outside of proper application. 
See, we can misapply God's promises and then be offended that he didn't do what he promised. So we can take Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good to those who love God who are called according to his purpose, and we say, God's going to give you a job based upon this verse. Or we say, God's going to bring your child back to Christ. Or we take another promise and say, God's going to heal you because of this verse. And so that's our interpretation, and so we're waiting for the application. And when God doesn't heal, when you still don't have what you think you need, when your children are still rebellious, or that relative is still unsaved, or your marriage is still difficult, we can become bitter at God. You're not doing what you should do. It's wrong interpretation. And so we're expecting wrong application. See, there's a difference between our prayers and God's promises. They're not often the same things. Our prayers are what we want God to give us. God's promises are what he says he's given us in Christ. And to be honest, many of those we're not going to experience in this life. That's where the theme of faith and hope comes in. What do we hope for? Look at Romans 8. Creation eagerly is waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. We're waiting for glorified bodies. We're waiting to experience the promises that God says in his word. See, we're supposed to live in light of eternity, not like it's eternity. And we often misinterpret God's word. And we have an expectation of an application from God that he's not bound to do any more than he was bound to obey what the Pharisees thought. When God allows circumstances to happen, it is the right application coming from a right interpretation of his word. Doesn't mean that we have to like it, and let's just be honest. We don't. We don't. You ever had someone try to comfort you in your suffering is that other people have suffered more than you? <laughs> you know, honestly... I understand, but eat, this splinter hurts. <laughs> I don't care if someone in another city has this happen. My suffering affects me as an important to me. I don't like it. I can question, God, what are you doing? I've been praying forever, Lord. You said ask and you will give. And you, If God allows circumstances to happen in our lives, we must fight to believe that it is the right application of his word. Jesus is not just Lord of the Sabbath. He's Lord of the circumstance. And if he allows something to happen in our lives that we don't get, we have to assume our interpretation is bad 
So our expectation of a certain application is also bad. Jesus is gentle and lowly. And what he allows to happen in our lives is always the right application of his word. So what we must do is fight. And we have the ability to because he's given us his self on the cross. That yoke of grace is believing the cross. And we have that ability. His application will always be right. So we persevere. We fight. We do heart issues. We do head issues. Make sure we're interpreting God's word rightly. And we rest not in the Sabbath of inactivity, but the Sabbath of the good work on the cross. And if you do that, here's a promise that you can count on. 1 Thessalonians 5, 24 says this. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Let's pray. Father, first we thank you that we no longer have to keep a certain set of laws, especially not these, this mission of these 39 rules that the Pharisees set out for the Sabbath. We thank you that that, that yoke, that burden that's heavy has been replaced by a yoke that's light, a yoke of grace. But Lord, we don't always feel like it's light. We don't always see the grace in what you have us do. And I would say, Lord, would you help us to grow in a right interpretation of your word? I pray that we would humble ourselves and say, you know what, we're not, we're not sure if we're interpreting this rightly. Lord, if it were up to me, all the things that you promise in your word would happen right now for me and for the people that I love. But they often don't because my interpretation of your word is often bad. So, Lord, I pray that you would help us to persevere because you always have the right interpretation of your word because it's about you and you always have the right application of your word because it's about you. And I pray that you would help us to believe that even in the midst of suffering, uncertainty, confusion, perplexity, Sickness, financial provision, relational rejection. Your application is always right. We thank you that you chose us to experience that. So may we leave today with a commitment to examine our Bible reading if it's not producing good fruit and to recognize that you desire mercy and not sacrifice. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.